The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, in the days of Hezekiah, the son of Ammon. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. Those who have turned back from following the Lord. Who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice... I will punish the officials and the king's sons and those who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the morning, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end, he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect. Before the day passes like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden in the day of the anger of the Lord. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. And I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God shall be mindful of them. And restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites. How they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them. And the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride. Because they boasted and taunted against the people of the Lord of hosts. 
the Lord will be awesome against them. For he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place, all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch his hand out against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst. All kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog, shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultancy that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become. A lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her kisses and shakes his fist. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. They leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Every dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord from beyond the rivers of Cush. My worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, will bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deed by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst all your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, and they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and the renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. The word of the Lord. From January to mid-April, I spend all of my working hours in this book, 
Can you imagine 40 hours a week getting to just focus on 53 verses? 8 o'clock to 5.30, that's where I was, bathing myself in this book. Martin Luther said, of all the minor prophets, Zephaniah most clearly proclaims the greatness of Christ. What's amazing is that it's one of the few minor prophets that never mention the Messiah, the anointed king, the hope for deliverer, never mention him by name. And yet Luther could say, he's everywhere. And I'm eager for us to walk through between now and Christmas this book that you might see a holy God who is seated on the throne, who is promised to enter into our space and time. And when he does, the sinners will tremble. But the saved will rejoice. How do you move from that context of darkness where the day of the Lord is something that should bring deep fear to be one upon whom it can be said, perhaps, perhaps the Lord will hide you, deliver you, protect you. How can you get there? How did Zephaniah, speaking just before the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, how did he envision that transfer from the age of death to an age of life. In this one minor prophet, he just packages, Brother Kent this morning, I think it was you, who is just saying, wow, what an amazing book. It's like the whole Bible in three chapters. It just covers God's intrusion into space and time like he did at the flood, like he did with the Canaanites, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is sword as darkness. The day of the Lord is a sacrifice. To portray what's happening in the book of Leviticus, on the altar is war. That's how Zephaniah envisions sacrifice. Sacrifice is about war. God's just war against sin. And how do you, as a sinner, find yourself not on the altar of God's wrath? That's the question. But the day of the Lord is sure to come. And this book sets us up to celebrate an amazing Savior. I've called it the Savior's Summons to Satisfaction. Because, I don't know if you heard it, but from chapter 3, verse 8, down to 3.20, at the very end of the book, this is about joy. This is the portrait of the new creation that, is, that, that comes after Judgment Day. And what's part of that new creation, at the high point of it, is our joy in our deliverance, our joy in our deliverer. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. But for, for Zephaniah, that was still future. He hadn't experienced it yet. But, but he intrudes into this message of new creation, this vision of glory, where all the enemies are put down. It's as if he can taste it. It's as if he's already experienced it. What he desires so much is already becoming delight to him. But not only that, it's the only book in all the Bible where God sings over his sake. <clears throat> Zephaniah 3.17. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with what? Loud, loud singing. That's our God. We'll get there at Christmas time. <laughs> it is an amazing journey to move from death to life in this book. What's even more amazing is how the book itself anticipates it playing out. And then for us to think, on this side of the cross, on this side of a war of judgment that's been brought against sin, against the Lamb, on our behalf, what that means for the end of the book as we read it. If the day of the Lord, which is future, has intruded into the present, in the person of Christ, then those who are identified with Him are already experiencing new creation. Already 
experiencing what the end of the book is anticipating. Not simply Jews gathered to Jerusalem, but those from beyond the rivers of Cush. That's ancient Ethiopia. I didn't know when I entered into this book that it would mean certain things to me that it might not mean to you. I've got three kids who came from Ethiopia. My book that I am working on is dedicated to my three Cushites. Ezra, Joey, and Joel. This is a book that tells us that Ethiopia is under the judgment of God. But that's not it. It's a book that picks Ethiopia, of all the peoples in the ancient world, it only picks them, in chapter 3, verse 9, as the example of global, international gathering to Jerusalem in the new creation. There, exhibit A. God will reach out from beyond the rivers of Cush, beyond ancient Ethiopia, calling people to himself as worshipers. Indeed, they'll become priests because they serve and give offerings, sacrifices of praise. In Jerusalem, and the whole end of the book is focused on restoration in Jerusalem, but 3.9 tells us that those who are gathered there are not just renewed ethnic Jews. It's those from the nations. Identifying themselves with the king. Sing loud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Daughter of Jerusalem. Sing aloud. Rejoice, daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord your God has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel is in your midst. Never fear. There's only one place in all the Bible, one place in all the Old Testament, where daughter of Zion, fear not, and King of Israel shows up in one place. It's right here. Chapter 3, 14 and 15. Only one other place that it shows up. Daughter of Zion, fear not, king of Israel. Anybody have an idea? The other, only other place? It's in the New Testament. Exactly. It's in the triumphal entry. When Jesus is called the king of Israel, when it's declared, you know, on that text in John chapter 12, when he's getting ready to, when he's riding on the donkey in, and, and then they cite Zechariah chapter 9. But whereas Zechariah chapter 9 says, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion, your king comes to you. John doesn't quote it that way. He quotes it, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. And then Jesus is called the king of Israel. Fear not, daughter of Zion, king of Israel, and I think he has in mind Zephaniah chapter 3. But the end times anticipation of Yahweh as the great warrior who would put all evil down and establish the new creation, taking delight over those he saved, John is saying Jesus is Yahweh. And all that he anticipated has come in the person of Christ. The day of the Lord has come upon Jesus. He is the sacrifice. Zephaniah is going to lead us to the Messiah. First Peter, sorry, Peter in Acts chapter 3 says all the prophets focused on Jesus' death, his suffering, and the resurrection and the mission that would come after it. Then he says all the prophets from Samuel until this day anticipated this age of new creation that's been birthed with the resurrection. Acts chapter 3. All the prophets. So as we enter into Zephaniah, who's one of them, Peter would say, if you don't meet Jesus here, you're missing out. He met Jesus here. He was one of all the prophets from the days of Samuel who encountered the divine, crucified, resurrected Messiah through this book. He saw him, hoped for, longed for. And so we're going to have to have our lenses on to figure out where he's at. 
because he's never mentioned explicitly. But I believe he's here. Let's pray. Father, as we enter into a study of this amazing book, one of 66, I pray you grant us eyes to see and even more ears to hear. Zephaniah's audience was deaf. But you promised that we wouldn't be in this age. So I'm asking for sensory overload, that we might see and in turn savor, that we might hear and in turn be changed. Open up your word to us now for the glory of your Son, for our good. This is a broken world. Darkness is thick. Show us the light. journey from Genesis to Chronicles. Jesus' Bible ended with Chronicles. So we went through the entire Old Testament, and it's very hard to get through the book of Genesis in three weeks if you guys are doing talking. This is the reality. But now we have an entire semester to walk through 53 verses, which means I would love your participation. So let's look. Today's goal, we have the next 20 minutes to focus only on verse 1. I've got my calendar. I've got it all set out. We can just get through verse 1 today and smile. So turn with me to the book of Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 1. This is called the superscription. It's just a title. I chose superscription because I have three S's in my overall outline, and superscription fit. But it's a title, and many of the prophets have these titles, and this one is in some ways similar, in other ways different from all of them. Notice that it's not a sentence. There is a period at the end in my ESV, but it's not an actual sentence. There's there's no verb. We would say, this is, is the word of the Lord. And the, all of what we see here would be like the direct object in the sentence. This is the word of the Lord. Subject and its predicate. But that's not what we have here. All we have is straight up the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. The son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. In the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of of Judah. So let's begin with the first three words. Let's take four words. Sorry. The word of the Lord. Those are four words we can't jump over too quickly. So I want us to just pause for a second and ponder. Let yourself meditate on what is it telling us about the nature of this book? And what is, this, what is it telling us about where this book comes from, and how should we think about that? So the fact that this is a word, ponder, what does that bring to mind? What, there, there's not like right answers, wrong answers. I'm going to try to guide you in the path that you should go. But <laughs> the word of the Lord. So the word. The, what this is is a word. Just the right to John 1, she was being called the word. The word comes from so Okay, so right away going to John 1. Okay, the word was with God. The word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That somehow the word by which God spoke all things into being, Hebrews chapter 1, the very word that's upholding all things, moment by moment, is Christ. 
somehow there's an identity that we see as we move through Scripture of the Word of God in the person of Jesus. Okay, that's good. What does that imply? Or what, what does it un unpack a little further? What that, that it's a word. Communication. Okay. So this isn't, it is, it's just amazing that God communicates and he communicates in a way that some people can actually understand. That he set up a system where communication matters. My kids are learning to read. My 16-year-old, she's getting it. <laughs> so, learning to read chiefly for this reason. That she might be able to relate to the God who gave us this book. There's lots of other books. This is the most important book. There's no book of greater importance than this one. Because in it, God speaks clearly. He also speaks through the world. If we have eyes to see, always speaking, consider the birds of the air. Look at the lilies. But it's this book that actually gives us clarity. It's like it puts the lenses on so that we know what we should be looking for. We know what we should be hearing when we see the stars and hear them hum that tune of glory. It's a word. It's about communication. And, and Zephaniah, all 53 verses, are being we're being told this is a word. It's intriguing. It's not words at this point. Sometimes God gives us words, but here, this is a word. What would that, why do you think that would be that way? Okay, that there's a message here, that there's a, a wholeness to it, that there's a unity, that there's, and, and with that, there's purpose, there's structure. He's wanting to lead us somewhere, but there's an overarching message, and so much so that it can be viewed as a whole. That's important. As I approach biblical books, I am wanting to unpack, I, I'm, I'm assuming something that's made explicit right here, that this is a whole that's all working together, and that I should be able to track the flow of thought in this book. Whether it's a story, I should be able to follow the plot line and read it in relation to the covenant materials. Read the covenant history in light of the covenant document. But in this, it's not a story. Now this is a sermon. We have three-chapter sermon. We have longer ones. We were in Deuteronomy 5 through 11 for three years. It was very long. <laughs> This, we're going to get through in one semester, and it's sermon, and we should be able to be thinking about, okay, God is communicating a message here, a whole message. If we just read a part and don't read in light of the whole, we're going to miss something. If all we do is focus on chapter one, we're going to leave highly discouraged, because in chapter one, there's no sense of hope. It's about judgment. It's about darkness. It's about sin is serious because God is holy. But God will not let his people stay there. So he urges them, gather together and seek me. Seek me together in order to avoid judgment. But that's not the end. He keeps going in chapter 3, verse 8. Wait for me. Wait for me. In order that you might find your salvation culminated in deep satisfaction. Seek me together to avoid judgment. Wait for me to enjoy satisfying salvation. That's the two parts of this book. But if you just focus on one, you're going to miss the whole message. So it's the word. The word of the Lord implies, the book says, basically, the word of authority and truth. I mean, that's that's the character of God, and that's the word of the Lord. I mean, okay, so we're going to move now from communication to the source. Because if this was just the word of a man... If it was just Zephaniah's word, <clears throat> would we be compelled to listen? Maybe, maybe not. Depends on who Zephaniah is. If he's my boss, 
then I want to keep working at this place, it'd probably be a good idea. If it's daddy, well, he weighs a little heavier than the neighbor. Who's the source of this word? God himself. Pardon? God himself. God himself. There you go. So all of a sudden, right from the get-go, the first four words in the book take our eyes off the messenger to focusing on the message and its source. There's a weightiness to this. He is not just a man. He is, he is an emissary. He's an ambassador of the heavenly court. And the king of the universe has spoken. God's going to be called the king in 3.15. The king of the universe's word is being born by this man. That's what a prophet is. It's half of his role. He is a preacher. Anybody know the other half of his role along with a preacher? Pardon? That the, the role of the prophet principally as a preacher. A listener. A shepherd, a guide. Okay. Seer. Seer. These are all words associated with the foretelling and foretelling role of the prophet. The mouthpiece aspect. So he's a guide. He's a shepherd. He's, he's a nurturer. He's a spanker with his words. But all that's part of the, the foretelling and foretelling. A lot of us think of prophet as predictor, right? But as we read the Old Testament, most often prophets were less predictors and more preachers in the sense of they're focused on seeing people today live rightly before God. And when he focuses on the future, it's about changing, motivating them through warning or through restoration blessing promises. Nurturing hope or dread about the future will change who you are today. What you hope for or fear tomorrow makes you a different person today. If you know that the choices you're making now will lead you on one path or another. That's one half of the prophet's life. The other half was intercessor. Cursed be me, says Samuel, if I fail to pray for you, along with teaching you the word of the Lord. It's those two aspects. So he is one who speaks for God to the people, and he's one who speaks for the people to God. See how he's in the middle? To Ezekiel, God will say, I looked for a man who would stand in the gap. That right in the middle. God's wrath is coming. Who's going to stand in the gap and actually derail the wrath of God by prayer? Not yet, God. Continue to be long-suffering. Don't bring your judgment now, please. That's what the prophet was supposed to do on behalf of the sinful people. He's supposed to stand there pleading for them. God, give them more time to repent. Hear them, Lord. They have humbled themselves before you. Now answer. That's what the prophet's doing. He's standing as a prayer and as a preacher, bringing God's word to the people, preacher, and bringing the people's words to God, prayer. This book is dominated by the preaching side. It's the word of the Lord, but Zephaniah is merely the human instrument. So all the authority is placed on the source. Now let's just ponder that for a second. The word of Yahweh. What do we got? I was just going to ask basically right where you're headed. In their day, there were probably a lot of prophets who claimed they were speaking the word of the Lord, and obviously probably a lot more than we have in our Bible. How did they discern what was really the word of the Lord? And from that, if you have time to run this tangent, how did they decide what needed to be in our Bible? That's that's a great question. What's at stake is, why Zephaniah, why did his word rise up to the surface when all the other prophets, and there was many, many, many of them, both speaking on behalf of Yahweh and speaking on behalf of foreign gods. God's words were, gods were speaking all over the place. So why is it that these 12 minor prophets show up in our text? Think about who they were facing. Usually they were the minority voice. People 
people weren't listening to them. So how is it that now these are the words that got revered? Any ideas? Okay, so let's ponder this. Zephaniah is going to preach the day of the Lord is at hand. Darkness is going to come and Jerusalem is going to get wiped out. There's other prophets who are saying, come on, we are God's people. I know this because Jeremiah is Zephaniah's contemporary. And in Jeremiah chapter 7, there's people who are saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We have the temple. God's presence is with us. And not only that, we have the word of God. The word of God and the presence of God. Bring those together. We are unstoppable. It would have been good if they would have read the word. Say, how about that generation of Israelites, after they went in and said, we're not going to, we can't beat the giants. Then God said, okay, 38 more years in the wilderness and all this generation is going to die. What did they do? How did that nation respond at that point? They went back and tried to take the land. Were they able to? No. Because if God really isn't on your side, who cares what you're proclaiming with your words if your heart is far from him? He's not for you. And so Zephaniah is proclaiming all these other voices are coming, and a prophet is shown by whether or not his testimony is true. Well, what comes about that might have lifted up Zephaniah's name and word in the presence of all around him? And all of a sudden, people didn't make his word Bible, they recognized it as Bible. What, what came? It was actually... Who came after Assyria? Babylon. So in Zephaniah's day, Assyria has already conquered the north. And they're just about ready in 612 to be fully undone by the Babylonians. But they've already destroyed the north. And it's Babylon, who's not even mentioned in the book, and we'll have to ask why. It's Babylon that will ultimately destroy Jerusalem. So it comes about, and all of a sudden, all the yes-man prophets who are saying, King, you don't have to worry, we're safe, we're secure, all the yes-man prophets, what would Israel now do with their prophecies once Jerusalem falls? What does he do? What do they do? Chaco. And what do they do as Zephaniah? This is the word of the Lord. He said it was, and it's proven itself to be true. We have a Bible upon which we can stand for the ages. And I think that's how the prophetic voice was discerned. It was less. And, and then, if, if they were able, if they were mindful of it, then as the prophets are working their way out, if Zephaniah agrees with Isaiah, in contrast to other Joe Blow prophets down the street, and Isaiah was already proven to be true, then maybe we should be thinking, even as he's preaching before Babylon falls, we should be thinking that maybe we should align with him. Or how about, how well does he align with Moses? He's actually, Moses prophesied exactly what he's prophesying. Maybe we should be thinking about this. So they're recognizing Bible in light of what is said and in light of how history is playing itself out in relation to what they're saying. The word of the Lord, highest authority. Zephaniah is only a mouthpiece. Now we come to Zephaniah. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. And then we get the longest genealogy associated in a title among any of the prophets. Five different people are mentioned in this genealogy. And it's, it kind of jumps off the page because there, we don't see it anywhere else in the Bible. Why would a prophet named Zephaniah, why would they take him back five, four more generations, so that there's five total, back four generations to this guy named Hezekiah? Because he was the king. Who remembers King Hezekiah? What can you tell me about this guy? There's 20 kings in the north called Israel, 20 kings in the south called Judah. 
All 20 in the north get bad reputations. 20 kings, 10 dynasties. It's amazing. But in Judah, one dynasty, all in the line of David, but 18 of the kings, according to the book of Kings, which you've read if you're moving through the Bible and now get to Zephaniah, Kings has already come. So you are, of those 20 kings in the south, all of them in the line of David, 18 of them were bad. And then two were good. Is Hezekiah among the 18 or the two? The two. So, what do we know about Hezekiah as the good king? What's he known for? Pardon? Um, I'm trying. I don't remember that happening with Hezekiah. I remember that happening with Joshua. When Assyria was threatening to take over Jerusalem, he was the one who took the petitions before God, laid it out to him, prayed for the nation, waited for God to answer, and God did, and saved Jerusalem from. That's right. So Hezekiah was a significant king in Israel's history in that when the enemies came, he did not give in to them like all the other kings did. He had been in alliance with Assyria, which God said, don't trust in men. Don't trust in horiots. Horiots. Horses and chariots. <laughs> trust in the name of the Lord. And Hezekiah turned from his treaty alliance with Assyria and said, we will trust in Yahweh. Then Assyria sends in the leaders, their leader, Rabshaka was the commander's title. And Rabshaka says, why are you trusting in your God? None of the gods of all the nations. So think about Assyria and the northern Mesopotamia, and their kingdom is expanding, expanding, expanding. So it's going to fill the whole world. And now it gets down here to Jerusalem, and Rabshaka says, thus says the king, the great king, the king of Assyria, who are you to trust in your Yahweh? None of the gods of all the other nations have been able to stop. And you think Yahweh's going to be able to help you? Indeed, it was Yahweh who told me to destroy Israel in the north, your brother. And you think God's not also going to give me you? And so he goes, Hezekiah, rather than freaking out in fear, his fear moves him to pray. And he goes to the temple and he lays out the letter before the Lord and he pleads with God and God brings Isaiah the prophet in. And God answers. And in one night, 84,000 or 83,000 Assyrians were killed by an angel of death. And Assyria went back to the north instead of overcoming Jerusalem. That king, he's in line with. Now, what happened between Hezekiah and, and Josiah, who is king in the days of Zephaniah? Good or bad things? Bad. In fact, who remembers Hezekiah's son? Manasseh, the wickest, most wicked king of Judah. He at least is given the most space as a wicked king. What is he most known for? Sacrificing children on the altar of his own pleasure in order to satisfy, in order to appease others. He's burning his children outside the city gates. It doesn't get any lower than that. And then he has a son named Ammon who's only on the throne for two years then he gets knocked off who it says he's even worse than Manasseh. And Ammon gave birth to Josiah. It's in those days of Manasseh when Zephaniah is most likely born. For him to be between 25 and 30 requires for him to be born during the days of Manasseh, and as best as I can tell, people would probably not have listened to any prophet unless they were at least that old. 
What does Zephaniah's name mean? The Hebrew verb zaphan means to hide. And then yah at the end. What is that for short for? Yahweh. Yahweh is hidden. It seems to be a testament to Zephaniah's parents were trusting in God. In the midst of the darkness, Zephaniah's parents were looking to God for help, and they were recognizing God's the one who's given us this son. God's the one who's protected in some way. But it's not only Zephaniah who has God in the midst of his name. Who else has God in the midst of his name? Look at the genealogy. Hezekiah, which means Yahweh has strengthened me. Who else? Amariah. Amariah. Amer is to speak. Yahweh has spoken. Who else? Gedaliah. Gadal is to be strong. Yahweh. Wait a second. Gadal. To be great. Yahweh is great. Generation after generation after generation, there is a testimony of faith in God in the midst of all the darkness. And it wants us to remember the darkness. It's going to stress, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon. These are bad times. And yet there is a multi-generational preservation that's being done by the living God. He's holding them. Holding faith in Yahweh. But not only faith in Yahweh, he's doing so specifically in the line of David. It may seem like God has forgotten his people. It may seem that it's as dark as it can get. But God hasn't forgotten. Indeed, he's preserving Yahweh followers for the sake of his name in the line of David. And the very presence of Zephaniah in a book that doesn't mention the Messiah, the very presence of Zephaniah in this line that goes back to Hezekiah, he's in the royal line, gives testimony to God's preservation of the line of David, which sets us up then for remembering Davidic hope. What did God, what kind of, what do I mean by Davidic hope? What kind of hope was given to those, to David? 2 Samuel chapter 7. Anybody remember? An eternal kingdom. A throne that would never end. Which means that David was anticipating either that this line of 20 kings that would flow from him would just continue in perpetuity forever. That's one way to have an eternal throne. What's the other way to have an eternal throne? To have Christ come from your line. To have one individual who would somehow overcome death and never die. Or at least he would die and then rise, and his throne would never end. And that's, that's what we have. The eternal throne is, is that it's actually focused on a person in the line of David. And, and in the midst of darkness, I think right off the bat, this title is intentionally designed... To make a people who might feel, and indeed the way the book is set up, why wouldn't he mention the Messiah in his sermon? I think a good reason is because he wants them to feel like your sin has pushed you almost to the point where the hope of the Messiah's kingdom is almost gone for you. And yet the very title, in the way that it sets us up, says there's still life, there's still hope, there's still potential. God hasn't forgotten his Davidic promise to bring on a king. So the fact that he was the son of Cushi, Cush, I assume that has nothing to do with the Cushites. I mean, I don't know why I assume one or the other, but it wouldn't make sense, I guess. Somebody read three, chapter 3, verse 12. Good love. But I will sorry, read. sorry. Chapter 2, verse 12. You, you also, O Cushite, shall be 
slain by my sword. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. Then, chapter 3, verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. My offering. I'm sorry, my offering. So Cush is one of the five people groups that are sectioned out for judgment. And then Cush is the only people group that is set out, set apart to give exhibit A of a global international restoration. And the text intentionally tells us that Zephaniah was a son of Cushy. Cushy means black. It's why the title was given to the ancient Ethiopians, because they were representative of black Africa. In contrast to Egypt, which was not black Africa. Until the Cushites came and overcame Egypt, and so we have the Cushite Egyptian dynasties, which I think is what's being referred to here, because Egypt's not mentioned, and Egypt was the big southern superpower. So it mentions that the Cushites are under God's judgment, and I think that's because it's during the period of the Cushite dynasty when they were overseeing Egypt. Now all this sets us up for the possibility that that Zephaniah's grandmother named her son Michael my blackie, cushy. We have many examples from this exact time period in the Bible, in Jeremiah and in Kings and in Chronicles, that tells us there were many Ethiopians associated with the, the Israelite government. <coughs> many Ethiopians, which sets up the possibility, so we know that Zephaniah is in the line of David, but that in that line, one of the individuals who married into the family was an Ethiopian. Which makes Zephaniah a biracial Israelite. Do you hear that? That God in his grace would choose a biracial, half-black, quarter-black person to bring forth his word, to stand as the messenger, as an image in and of himself of God's global, international vision for his people. The world was not here for Israel. Israel was here for the world. Through you, Israel, the world will be blessed. And that's the hope of the Davidic covenant. That it's that king who would rise through whom the world would come. The blessing would come. And so in this Connection with Hezekiah, the only name that doesn't have God's name built into it is Cushy. It stands out, and I think it's actually very intentional. In order to set us up, we're not simply anticipating a Davidic hope. We're anticipating a Davidic hope that includes the nations. And all of a sudden, that book, the book then, becomes fodder for we as Gentile believers, most of us, Gentile believers. We find ourselves here. That God's work would reach as far as Ethiopia. Which was the most southern superpower in the ancient world. God's got a global vision. I sure intend to be done by 12.15. I'll have to work on it. <laughs> we just covered one verse. <laughs> Takeaway. Consider some implications of the book of Zephaniah being the word of the Lord. What does this mean for you now? What does it mean as we open it up? As we begin to enter in? It's trustworthy. Another implication. It's true. Another implication. 
It has purpose. God doesn't do things by accident. What else? It's global because... Okay, the word because it's the word, there's this, this lastingness to it. Um, if it's coming from a God who created everything, does he speak in a way that is only for one people at one time? Or is it what Paul said in Romans 15? All that was written in former times was written for us. What else? Okay. When God speaks, we should listen. I don't think we can just set, take this book and say, well, that's Old Covenant preaching. Paul and Jesus only preached from the Old Testament. They didn't have the New yet. As Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 15, you were raised up on the sacred writings, Old Testament, that are able to make you wise unto salvation, past, present, and future deliverance from sin in my daily life, from the wrath of God even before that. That we can gain word, words of life from the word given to Zephaniah. I believe it's going to be the case. Oh, that God would give us ears to hear. Because in Deuteronomy 29.4, we're told he didn't give Israel ears to hear. And generations went by of people who the prophets were speaking and blah, 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 blah. no one was listening. And God wants us to hear it. How about this one? Celebrate God's non-prejudicial mercy to preserve a remnant that hopes in his name. There's two parts here. God shows no partiality. I gotta wrap it up. He chooses a biracial Jew. Don't think one ethnicity is better than another. God is a global vision. But not only that, hear this. Rather than bringing judgment when it was due, he sends a prophet to proclaim terms of peace. If you're in sin today, stop running and start listening. If you're looking at things you shouldn't be looking at, if you're letting your heart fester on things they shouldn't be festering on, Know this, we have a God who does not show partiality. He's willing to forgive even you. He intrudes with a, a prophetic voice of mercy, calling people back. And then we have a God who perpetuates kingdom hope from generation to generation to generation. Your life is not so broken or so dark that the light of the gospel, the kingdom gospel, the good news of the kingdom can't penetrate. We have a king who's over all, and he is going to speak this semester. May God grant us here. Father, I pray you help show me. This is just one verse, and next week we get to cover five more, and I'm going to be done earlier. So help me. Show me how to do this. I pray that you would grant us ears to hear. This is a living word, and I want to see it proclaimed. Thank you that you are a God who has spoken. Thank you that you are a God who shows no prejudice in bestowing mercy, a mercy that is intended to preserve our remnant. Let us be among them. As dark as it gets, as hard as it gets to stand for you in the days and years to come, as hard as it is already in pockets all around the globe, in a world where children are being beheaded because they're willing to stand true to, what, to the word that their parents have spoken, grounding their lives in the promises and faithfulness and truth of your book. Thank you for mercy, for the power of the gospel. Hold us. Help us take your holiness seriously that we might celebrate satisfaction. In your name we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. 
But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason Deroshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. Deroshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.